once I found in him a friend so strong and true. I would tell you how he changed my life completely. He did something that no other friend could do. All my life was full of sin when Jesus found me. In the early church, the leader would say, Christ is risen. And the congregation would respond, Christ is risen indeed. Christ is risen. My prayer is that you are able to say the same thing from your heart. Christ is risen indeed. This is the day the Lord hath made, so let us rejoice and be glad in it. I'm so glad you've joined us for this ministry tonight. My name is Hal Brady, and I am delighted. As always, my prayer is that you will be blessed both by the Word and the music. So now would you please hear the reading of God's Word from Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, and I'll begin with verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling cloths stood beside them. 
The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home amazed at what had happened. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you join me, please, for a moment of prayer? O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, which art our strength and our redeemer. Amen. A minister described his Easter worship service last year. He said when the service was over, a crowd quickly gathered at the door as they filed out to shake his hand. Some of them were complimenting on what a great service it was, how glorious the music was, how well he did. But then he said one young man, probably a college student, came by and stuck out his hand and shook his head, and he simply said, I don't know, I just don't know. In the minister's words, to our assured Christ the Lord is risen today, hallelujah, this young man said, I don't know, I just don't know. Well, I think that young man was speaking for many of us. If some of us have a problem believing the Easter story, it's understandable. The resurrection is such an amazing thing that it has to have a problem for many people. It's absolutely incredible. Imagine this, you're at a funeral. The minister's giving the eulogy and suddenly the guest of honor pops up out of the coffin. We're being asked that a dead man has come back to life that the impossible becomes possible. We are being told that the prejudice can be shifted over into love. We are being told that seeming defeat is really victory. No wonder people have trouble believing the resurrection. It may be that we just understand the issues. At any rate, let's recall this first Easter as Luke tells us what happened. The women were on the way to the tomb. They were the first ones to arrive in the cemetery. They were there to embalm the body of Jesus. They didn't know anything about him being alive. As a matter of fact, their only concern was who would roll away the stone for us. That's the way the writer of Mark's gospel put it. Who would roll away the stone for us? They were among the dead, seeking the dead. But then the angels said to them in no uncertain term, he said he was going to be put to death and now he is alive. Can you imagine how excited they were? I can't imagine their excitement, their initial excitement at hearing this word. And so they raced off to tell the eleven. They raced to tell them. But when they got there, we're told that these eleven who had lived with Jesus intimately for three years, they did not believe. They did not believe. The women's words seemed to them as an idle tale. Take your pick of these. Empty talk, a foolish yarn, utter nonsense which leads to the first thing I want to say. The resurrection is sometimes disbelieved because it seems an idle tale. It seems an idle tale. There's one feature about Luke's account of this story 
that's quite in tune with our modern-day thinking, and that is skepticism about the resurrection. Sometimes we just skip over the disciples and their dismay. As far as they were concerned, these crushed disciples, this was total nonsense, nonsense. Now, honestly, do we not feel a measure of comfort with these apostles? Sure we do, sure we do. No one need remind us that ours is not one of the ages of greater faith. The robust beliefs and amazing affirmations of yesterday do not come easy to modern-day Christians, especially those in the West. Here are some eye-opening statistics for you. At the beginning of the 20th century, in 1900, 71% of professing Christians lived in Europe. At the beginning of the year 2000, only 28% claimed to be Christian. You may be surprised to know that there are more Christians in China than there are in America, by far. There are more Presbyterians in Ghana than there are in Scotland, where John Knox and the Presbyterians came from. There are more Baptists in Nagaland, which is a state in India, than in all the South. You may be surprised that there were more Christians worshiping last Sunday in China than in all of Europe combined. Now, what is the point of this? The point of this is to say that the future of Christianity is in the developing part of the world. We're talking about Africa and Asia and Latin America. In other words, the researchers of the Pew Institute simply said, it ain't here. I repeat, the robust beliefs and mighty affirmations of yesterday simply do not come easy for modern-day Christians, contemporary Christians. You know, there's a professor by the name of Chuck Hunter. He's a dean at Asbury. He coined a word called agnostics, agnostics. He said that agnostics are people with no Christian memory. They do not even know what Christian people are talking about. That's a good word to describe many people who live in the West as far as Christianity is concerned. So perhaps Jesus is a great moral example. Perhaps the Bible is great literature. Perhaps religion does cause some of the foundations of this society to be good. But the resurrection, nonsense. Somebody said that Easter could be defined in the analogy of a baseball game. Suppose you are out at the baseball game and your team is trailing 20 to nothing in the bottom of the ninth inning. So you decide that you're just going to leave to beat the traffic. So you leave early. But when you read the paper the next morning, it says that your team won the game. Let's take the analogy a little bit further than that. Let's say you stay to the end of the game. Your team loses 20 to nothing and you leave in defeat. But the newspaper tells you the next morning that your team actually won. The resurrection, nonsense. You know, some words of Joan River come to mind. She says, can we talk? Can we talk? Can I be real honest with you? If the resurrection be nonsense, what are we going to do with the New Testament witness, the eyewitness accounts, the changed disciples, the church itself? From my reading of the New Testament, I don't get the feeling that those writers are going to follow off after some hoax. They're not going to suffer and die for some hoax. We know that most of the apostles and the early Christian leaders died for their faith. And then the apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He said, And last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. And what can we say about the church? The church is surely a post-Easter phenomenon. Remember this, the church did not produce the resurrection. The resurrection 
brought about the church. Now, the church in all of its imperfections, why has it been able to last all these years? In a cannibalistic world, why has not the church disappeared? Well, first of all, its secret is not in numbers. More often than not, the secret has been with, the numbers have been with other people, not with the Christians. They've been the persecuted minority. Nor has the secret been in power. That's not the reason the church survived, because more often than not, the foes had all the power, the thrones and the swords. And I'm sorry to say, tragically, it's not in the righteousness of its proponents. The proponents of the church have often led to Jesus, to new Calvaries. So how has the church made it? How has the church survived through the years? Listen carefully. It has begun and persisted through the indwelling presence of the living Christ. Through the indwelling presence of the living Christ. So there we have it, the New Testament witness. We have the eyewitness accounts. We have the church, and then we have the changed disciples. Wait a minute. The changed disciples. The changed disciples. We read that those disciples who lived in so much fear suddenly become courageous. They possessed a holy boldness. What caused them to change into holy boldness? It had to be the living Christ. Let me tell you, when I was pastor of the First Methodist Church of Dallas, Texas, I received a letter from a lady. This lady was a regular visitor to the church. She came every Sunday. She wrote me this letter and said, you know, her life had changed. She had found meaning and purpose and peace. And then she said, I'm writing you this note at Easter to let you know of the resurrection of one continuing visitor, me. She's talking about the living Christ living within her. There's a pastor by the name of Johnny Ray Blood. This fellow's pastor of the Baptist Church in Brooklyn, New York. He said whenever he sees a man put down his bottle, he knows a resurrection is going on. He said whenever he sees a man hug his son, he knows a resurrection is going on. He said whenever he sees a man going back to school, he knows that a resurrection is going on. Now I ask you, is all of this nonsense? Is it nonsense? And then secondly, the resurrection is sometimes disbelieved because of fear. We read on in Luke's gospel these words, but they were startled and terrified. That was the disciples' reaction to the supernatural. They thought they had seen a ghost, and they were absolutely too afraid to believe. They were fearful. And in reality, isn't that true of some of us? What would happen if the resurrection was true? What would happen? What would it mean if the resurrection was true. If the resurrection were true, life would make sense, and we could breathe easier, right? Wrong. For sooner or later we would realize that if the resurrection is true, then life is only going to be lived out in terms of God's terms and not ours, and that would complicate the procedure a great deal. A few years ago, a bishop was speaking in a worship service, and he commented on the noted jazz musician Fats Waller. He said Fats Waller was the son of a minister, and he wanted to help his father in the worship services, so he would write hymns and rewrite hymns. One of his hymns had this line, Everything that's not of Jesus will go down. If the resurrection is true, everything that's not of Jesus will go down. That means that everything ugly will disappear, and everything beautiful will triumph. It will triumph. And the plain truth is 
if God is not content to let things rest at Calvary, then we can be sure God is not going to be content with our injustice in the world, with our mixed priorities in the world, with our unkindnesses in the world, with our indifferences in the world. If God is not content to let things go at Calvary, he's not going to be content to let things go in our world today. Right after the war between the states, a church in Washington, D.C., decided to hold a communion service. And so the minister invited all the people to come forward to receive the sacrament. There was one fella in the balcony. The door opened and he came down. He was a former slave, an African-American. He came down, walked down the aisle, and knelt at the altar. Well, there was a moment of silence. Tensions were everywhere. The former slaves had been members of the church and they had come, but they'd always stayed in the balcony. But this day, this one walked down the aisle and knelt at the altar. There was tension and silence. And then all of a sudden, a white man got up out of his pew and he walked down the aisle and he knelt right by the former slave at the altar. The man served in communion, the minister did. Others came and everything went well. After the service, people were asking him why he did what he did. How could you possibly do what you did? And this fellow answered, he said, My friend, at the cross, all ground is level. At the cross, all ground is level. And that is really and truly so. At the cross, all ground is level. So these disciples, they were fearful because they knew that life would have to be lived differently if Christ were alive. There's a minister in New York, his name is Timothy Keller. He said, sometimes people come to him and say, you know, I don't think I can believe this aspect of the Christian faith. I like this part, I don't like this part. Keller always answers them this way. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then everything Jesus says is true and you have to believe it. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then why bother about any of it? But he simply said this. He said, but whether we believe or not, has nothing to do with whether we like it or not. It's whether Jesus rose from the dead. And so these disciples, they knew, they knew Jesus was alive. If he were alive, it would mean they had to live their lives differently. And then thirdly, and then thirdly, there's another thing we need to consider here. The resurrection is sometimes disbelieved because it's simply too good to be true. It's simply too good to be true. You know, we're told in the 41st verse, of this chapter, we're told that these people disbelieve still. Why? They disbelieve for joy, for joy. This is not an uncommon reaction to great, exceptional, joyful things. Sometimes a rumor comes about that the war is over. It's too good to believe. Sometimes somebody is lost, is found. It's too good to believe. Sometimes a dream is fulfilled, a la Bubba Watson at the Masters Golf Tournament. Sometimes we say, it's just not happened. It's too, too good. Somebody says, oh, it happened, but we still disbelieve for joy. My father was telling about his son a few years ago. He said his son loved Captain Kangaroo and Mr. Rogers. He watched those programs all the time. As a matter of fact, day in and day out, he was watching them. And one day he heard that Mr. Rogers was going to be visiting Captain Kangaroo. And he was so excited. He was ecstatic. Every day he would ask his dad, if this was the day that Mr. Rogers would be on Captain Kangaroo, 
finally, when the day came, his family was all gathered around, and there they were together, his two heroes. The little boy looked a little while, and then he got up and walked out. His father, puzzled, followed him and said, Son, what is it? Why did you, why did you leave? He said, It's just too good. It's just too good. Maybe that's the way it is with the resurrection. It's just too good to believe that God has the last word. It's just too good to believe that God is not mocked, that God's will is going to be done. There's a lady by the name of Nell Money. She wrote a book, and she, the title of it was, Don't Put a Period Where God Puts a Comma. This is the message of Holy Week. The arrest of Jesus was not the end. The trial of Jesus was not the end. The crucifixion of Jesus was not the end. The burial of Jesus was not the end. The world said, look what we've done. We've ended him. We've taken care of this. We've solved this problem. But God looks at him and says, after they say, put a period here, God says, no, no, it's just a comma, just a little old comma. God says, I've got more surprises for you. This is only the beginning. Just hang in there with me. More things are coming, more wonderful things. That was a man in business who went home one night with a contract that if he would sign it was going to make him a lot of money. Well, he went home and read the contract and he gave it to his wife and she read it. He waited on her response. She was very quick to give the response. She said, honey, we can't do this. He said, why? She said, well, because, because of God. He said, you know, that's exactly what conclusion I came to. And so the contract the next morning went back unsigned. Is all of this Nonsense, I ask you. Is it nonsense? What did the steward say to the minister as he was passing through the door? He said, I don't know. I just don't know. Well, there are a lot of you who do know and want to know, and I'd like to share with you these quick things before I conclude. Number one, remember. Remember the angel told these women that Jesus said he was going to die but now he was alive. Study the scriptures. Secondly, respond. Jesus only appeared in the resurrection to his followers. They responded. Jesus appeared to them. And then thirdly, represent. Be the resurrection to somebody else. One Sunday in a church, a minister had closed the Bible. He had finished reading the lesson. He stood up to preach. About that time, somebody in the balcony interrupted the service and said, I have a word from the Lord. People's heads snapped back. They couldn't believe it. Their heads snapped back. Ushers raced like roadrunners. They raced to the balcony, and they ushered this man out before he could say a word about the word the Lord had given him. Well, every Sunday, we preachers stand in our pulpits, and we preach, and we preach, and we preach. But do you know what? Our message is much like that one. I have a word from the Lord. But there are no alarms. There's no astonishment. There's nobody coming up to muscle us out of the sanctuary. He has risen. He has risen indeed. You know, somehow, I wished I could have preached this message from the balcony. Let us pray. Lord, we're so thankful for the resurrection. We're thankful for what it means to all of us. It means life and forgiveness and hope and kindness. We're grateful, O oh God. You've done for us far more than we can ever be worthy enough to thank you for. But you've done it anyway, so we give you praise and glory. Help us, O oh God, to live as resurrected people. It's in your name. Amen. I appreciate so much you joining me tonight, and I hope you'll plan to be with us 
each and every Thursday night. God bless you and yours, and have a good evening. Okay.